LGBTQ stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer. And just these five letters together has caused more outrage and baby rage than being called an incel by people you know are right. But what do these five letters really mean? What even is gender and sex? Why do people care so much about each other's sexuality? And why do we have these things in the first place? Is it all made up? Well, as much as I'll try to answer these questions today, all I can promise is you learning the basics. Hey, I'm not queer Sheehan. These are questions we've been asking for a very, very long time throughout all of human history, and we've only reached the next chapter of holding our heads in confusion as everyone figures out who they want to fuck and why. Get ready for a horny, angry, out-of-the-closet, info-dumping episode of Why Aren't You Talking About This? Hello everyone, and welcome to Why Aren't You Talking About This? I'm William, your host, who will be your sexless sex for today. Thank you to everyone for listening, and for all the hopefully positive word of mouth spread and good reviews. It means the world to me. If you're telling people this show is shitty, I still appreciate spreading the show, but I know where you live. And thank you to the one listener I have somewhere in Ashburn. Uh, despite me being on the entire opposite coast from you and all two or three of my foreign listeners. Weird and awesome that this show has so much spread. Anyways, this portion is also where I include important information that I can't wait, corrections, and other things that humble myself or to announce things. But since I'm still mostly just working on these podcast episodes and haven't gotten any emails, that'll have to wait. In the meantime, I'll start off the show with content this week, because the focus is about gender and sexuality, I'm going to be saying stuff around it a lot more and may even be outing myself more than normal. So if you'd be disturbed by discussing sex and sexuality or hearing my voice say more of that than normal, you might want to skip this episode. Luckily, I have about eight hours of other podcasting stuff to listen to in the meantime. But with that, let's jump right into the episode. So this episode is a pretty meaty one, especially in this section. We got a lot of definitions and stuff to go over, so we're just going to jump right into the first part of the topic. And no, not the kind of sex I really, really want, but I'm not kidding. Sex is in your genitals and stuff. Physiologically, sex is the combination of traits in the categories of hormones, anatomy, chromosomes, and bodily characteristics that combine together to determine if someone is male or female. And I know that's pretty dense, but put simply, imagine there's a massive board of traits on sliders so when taken together as an average, create male and female. But if you're woke enough or understand how sliders work, there's already a problem here. You don't use a slider when there's only two options. And what about people who have almost all of the traits of their sex, but then has one glaring difference? Like if someone's female in every way, but has a titanic hog. Well, besides being my fantasy muzzle dom, this would make them intersex which is someone who has a significant combination of male and female traits. So now that I've said traits so many times, what are they? 
beginning with hormonal traits, this would be how many of certain hormones you have in your body. And note that everyone has some amount of these, you fucking weirdos. I know some people honestly believe that female anatomy doesn't have testosterone, and they don't have estrogen. But speaking of these, let's start with testosterone. This is an androgen, a hormone that, amongst other things, regulates when you begin puberty and when and how much to develop male characteristics and biological features. Testosterone in the womb tells the embryo that used to be you to grow all the male parts when in high doses. Once you develop, testosterone controls bone mass, fat distribution, muscle mass and strength, the production of red blood cells and sperm, and your libido. Which again, everyone has it. If they didn't, the body wouldn't ever know when to be horny, might not produce red blood cells, would have bones made of wet cardboard. Next is the one associated with women. Estrogens. And yes, with an S at the end. Estrogens are hormones that regulate human growth and development, the features of your sex organs, and the structure of the following body systems. Neuroendocrine, where your hormones live, skeletal, adipose or fat, and cardiovascular. Also, high amounts tell your body to begin puberty and also influence your likelihood to be born with female traits. Part of this group of hormones is also progesterone, which regulates and signals menstrual cycles, fertility, and pregnancy changes. And if even just after that you aren't convinced, you're an idiot. Uh, because there's a fuck ton of chemistry happening just right here, as well as a lot of influence from your womb bearer's diet and environment, as well as just blind luck. To think that sometimes nature doesn't do a whoopsie and fuck around with a recipe is dumb. Also, this is just one of the four categories. So let's move on to bodily characteristics. Beginning with facial hair. Now, while all humans have hair on their face, look it up, you fucking incel, it is a male trait to have a lot of visible facial hair, while it's female to have less. Now, in addition to someone potentially having this trait due to their birth or having some reason for having higher androgens environmentally, there is also a condition called PCOS, which causes, amongst other symptoms, increased hair growth and higher levels of androgens. Next is voice depth. This trait is, again, on a very long slider. You could have a voice that is so high-pitched that it causes people to reflexively try to strangle you to a voice so deep that it vibrationally activates G-spots and prostates within a 10-mile radius. More commonly are females having higher voices and males having lower voices, which again can be altered by both environment and genetics. It's actually really easy to find examples of deep-voiced female people and high-voiced male people, as well as a lot of examples that are probably more than a bit surprising. I found a lot of celebrities with quote-unquote high voices that speak lower than I do. Then you have both shoulder broadness and hip wideness. In general, females have thinner shoulders and thicker hips, and males are usually the opposite. However, again, using the sliders as an example, where do you draw the line? At what point does someone have some sexy give-me-a-chunk-of-that-man-meat shoulders or crush-me-mommy hips, and at what point is it the opposite? And what does the androgynous middle look like? And not as in the amount of fat around your nipples, but as in functioning and developed mammary glands. Now first, this might seem like the first one or the other thing. But here's the deal. Most mammary glands don't even begin functioning until pregnancy occurs. And even then, sometimes they just straight up don't. Or alternatively, they do begin functioning, but far before someone becomes pregnant. And males can also lactate, but this is much rarer since the mammary glands in males aren't supposed to be active. So it's not actually one or the other, like everything else. 
So now we're on to the interplay between bone, muscle, and fat. In females, it's more common to have lower average muscle and bone mass and higher natural fat, especially around where the uterus would normally be. And males, again, are commonly the opposite. While it is a scary fact to realize as a male that, yes, in fact, you are much stronger than most females just because you had more testosterone in the womb, I want you to think about this. How many people have you met that have very, very low body fat or muscle mass contrary to their sex? Or have the opposite problem or just straight up in the middle? And again, if you're meeting an adult human being, there's so many factors going into this that it's hard to accurately say whether someone's bone, muscle, and fat masses make sense for their sex. So now that you're thinking through all those variables and factors, let's add in the chromosomes to make you just give up completely. So while XX denotes female sex chromosomes and XY denotes male sex chromosomes, recent research has actually altered this understanding of it. And recent, as in post-2020. This research has found that actually someone with XX genes can have all the male traits, including a penis and balls and asshole pleasure button we'll talk about in a bit, and the opposite as well. Also, as we've delved more into the genome, we've discovered that unlike what we thought, we can't create every single human being to have ever existed off of one of two things. While I love to tell you about all the thousands of sex genes we've discovered, I can't understand a fucking word of it. But unlike your uncle, I trust the science, and not just say that when I want to shit on trans people. But even with my lack of understanding, the thing that came through is that scientists also don't know what the fuck is happening in there. They've identified thousands of probable sex genes, but they understand maybe three of them. Kind of. So there are at least like four to 5,000 human sex genes that do shit we don't know about that changes your parents' sex. And tell me again how you can tell someone's sex by getting your grubby old man fingers in their genitals. So now we're going to talk about sexual anatomy. This is a thing that people will claim as the determinant of sex. As we've already seen, no, it's a lot more complicated than that. So starting with female sexual anatomy, the outside that I definitely want to touch but haven't gotten the courage to ask is called the vulva. This includes the labia, clit, which does exist, and includes the G-spot, urethra, and vaginal hole or vaginal opening if you're a doctor. That hole leads into the vaginal canal, which is the tube objects go into for pleasure or to sneak past guards and stealth games and up the cervix, which is the barrier into the uterus. The uterus is where eggs go to turn into embryos that a significant portion of the U.S. population values more than the whole last person carrying it. Connected to it is the fallopian tubes, which... Fun fact that they didn't teach me in school end in fucking tentacles that snatch eggs out of the fucking abdominal cavity, but the ovaries, where eggs and female hormones are produced, launches them like a fucking cannon. I swear to Christ, if anyone makes hentai based off that interaction, I will find your house and stab you into the uterus. Now also, part of this anatomy that I'm going to tell you about isn't necessary to, but will absolutely show that I know what I'm talking about to people who, by nature, know better than me are two glands, the Bathalin's glands and the Skeen's glands. The first releases a natural lubricant during sex, which is where pussy juice largely comes from, and fucking take that, I told you, and Skeen's glands releases fluid when a woman comes as a congratulation. Yes, squirt is real, and no, it's not piss. Get fucked. My 
personal retribution for my friends being dumb in high school aside, let's talk about male sexual anatomy. Versus the penis, also called the naughty hot dog, which is the primary sex organ. And also I'm going to go into less detail about this one because I didn't have to learn as much about it. Then you have the scrotum, the protective bag that defends your testicles about as effectively as abstinence does. And the testicles is where the male hormones and sperm is stored and produced. Jizz is stored in the balls. And finally is the prostate, which aids in the production of seminal fluid and is also the male G-spot. Ironically, for God-loving Christians, this is most easily reached through the butthole. Which, in addition to the clitoris and skein's glands, just proves that sex is supposed to be both enjoyable and filled with mutual head and penetration. But, anyways, when we take all these factors into account and accept that all of these chemicals and body parts can be included or excluded by accident or get mixed up or fused together, suddenly the number of sexes isn't two. It's literal millions if you name every single separate iteration. However, in the modern day, for most people, the sexes are male, female, and intersex. So with that, let's move on to gender. A gender, hold on to your ass, a gender is a socially constructed collection of physical emotional features, values, roles in society, and specific expressions like types of clothing and behavior. In a lot of cultures, but modern Western cultures especially, this is usually linked to sex, but as you can imagine, based on how foggy the edges of that definition is, gender isn't really something you can ascribe a particular number to. And yes, that is me saying gender is a spectrum without actually saying it, because I know that the phrase gender is a spectrum turns people into seizing meth monkeys faster than saying anything positive about OnlyFans models. And like being judgy about OnlyFans models and porn stars, I will immediately think you're an Andrew Tater Tot for being mad that gender is a spectrum. Okay, but now that I said that, why is gender a spectrum? Because like culture itself, there isn't really a universal human idea of what it is. I mean, think. What would you say is human culture? And you can't say whatever culture you grew up in. Pretty vaguely defined and hard to do, right? I mean, even before you add the queer stuff in there or talk about what different cultures consider to be gender in general, it's kind of a spectrum. Now, let's talk about what the two genders are that we see across the Western world and throughout a lot of modern cultures. Man and woman. So manly traits in the West are being both strong mentally and physically, courageous, independent, assertive, and being a natural leader. In addition, a big part of manliness is asserting your power and dominance through signs of physical prowess, high intelligence, wealth, and fucking basically anything with a pulse and a pussy. However, because of this, things like aggression and combat are also associated with men. And now, as my dad will point out, these aren't all bad things, as much as it may seem like at first glance that people fucking hate masculinity. The problem is when these things get out of control, or what you build your entire personality on. Because yes, it's great to be courageous and strong and independent, but also it's really fucking awful to be so independent and strong that you don't tell anyone that the feel-good gland in your asshole is getting bigger than your fists and then dying suddenly from prostate cancer. Putting on a strong face so often that you forget how to feel emotions and you're empty inside. Or challenging every man you see to a territorial arm wrestling match to see who gets to fuck the other one's wife, regardless of if anyone involved is actually okay with this. And womanly traits in the West are being nurturing, sensitive, sweet, supportive, modest, affectionate, kind, and helpful. 
rolled up into this are being like how vanilla people think of healers and support classes in video games and TTRPGs, being submissive and readable, non-violent, and devoted to the team. Which fucking gag me with a spoon. First of all, we know that healers are at least the power bottom, if not dom class. And secondly, like with your manliness, these traits are good to have. Unless they're all you have. In that case, you're going to get motherfucked in the bad way by life over and over and over and over again. And of course, there's a lot of women that are incredibly forceful, powerful people that know what they want and don't just want to do it themselves, but will and currently are. Which, if you're one of them, DM me. My phone number is... And clearly, these things also don't have every human trait or aspect of being a person that exists in the real world. Every person needs a bit of both to survive, and there's other things that aren't included here. But then also, there's a whole lot of people that don't strongly identify with either, or don't care for any of those traits, or just straight up don't have them. But with the actual mechanics of what a gender is, we can actually talk about gender identity. Gender identity is where you see yourself in the wide spectrum of genders. Me, for example, I see myself as a man. And with my sex being male, I would be the term cisgender. Now, besides being the sickest fucking own ever used on Twitter to deplatform someone asking even the most basic questions, cisgender is an actual thing, not just something you're called when a queer person wants to insult you. Cisgender, in the simplest terms, are when your sex and gender match. We're also going to cover what transgender is here. Someone whose transgender is a different gender than the one that would match their sex assigned at birth. Now in the US, this is usually male to female or female to male, but if your culture recognizes other genders, then those would also be included as well. And the thing is, is that like gender, trans people also exist on a spectrum. This spectrum is more of comfort within their own skin than anything else. For example, some male to female trans people feel comfortable and have thus transitioned by doing something as simple as wearing dresses and makeup. Others feel more comfortable with hormone therapy to more match the sex their gender reflects. Others will feel comfortable living their entire lives with the sex that matches their gender, but not receiving sexual reassignment, while others do these surgeries and therapies. It all depends on the specific person you're talking about. And the last umbrella I want to talk about with gender is non-binary. This means that your gender identity doesn't fit your culture's delineations of gender with the binary part in reference to the two-gender cultural norm of the West. Now, some people identify as non-binary just straight up, while others use it as an umbrella that contains a ton of other genders. Now, there are four standout ones that I want to specifically bring up. These being agender, bigender, gender fluid, and gender queer. I said gender a lot. Agender is having none. And while at first my brain was twisted into an existential crisis like yours is right now, just relax. These are people that just straight up don't feel attaching a gender identity and would prefer if everyone else is just cool with that. Next is bigender, which is someone who identifies with two or more genders. And the more part is just because it'd be really inconvenient to list tri, quad, penta, and all the other number prefixes. Gender fluid, besides being the thing that you need to refill to maintain your gender and acting as a general brain coolant, is someone whose identity isn't consistently one particular gender. Like gig work, you never know which gender is going to meet you at the door when you visit the person. And I'm just now realizing that using the store analogy also means you're going to be inside them. Good for both of you. Alright, and finally is gender queer. 
This means someone's gender identity doesn't match the cultural ideas around gender literally at all. Now, I know this may sound confusing, but I do have some advice for you on how to keep this all straight. Believe someone when they tell you their gender and pronouns, you thick dummy. That's too much for you. I'm surprised you made it this far, both in the episode and in your life. I'm surprised your mom didn't stop you before it even began. All right, but the other way to track this is using a spectrum chart, like a color wheel. And we'll have the x-axis be masculinity and femininity, because I'm American and trying is hard, and the y-axis be how strong or weak the expression of your gender is. Expression being outward displays. And let's say weak and ultra-masculine are both zero, while ultra-feminine and strong are both ten. Using this, you can chart your own gender and use it to compare to other people, and most will fit. And the people who don't, they know better. So don't take my word for it and then get grumpy when the gender queer people you're harassing won't answer your questions, you ass. Alright, now let's talk about sexuality. Sexuality is the capacity for someone to have sexual feelings and identify that attraction to specific genders and or sexes. Or in simpler terms, how much you want to fuck, and who you want to fuck. And obviously, before we move on, this means both consenting and adult. We'll get into what philia is later, and why that is in a sexuality. We're talking about having sex. Make the assumption I'm talking about enthusiastic consent with another adult. Because otherwise, I wouldn't say sex. Alright, that aside, let's explore that definition a bit more. Like gender, you can put sexuality on a chart, with the y-axis being the amount of sexual attraction and the x-axis being what gender you're into. And most, if not all, people will fit on a range from zero sex with anyone to wanting to fuck exclusively their own gender. Now, while this usually refers to just fucking each other, sexuality is a bit broader. See, it's not only about the good physical fucking, it's also the emotional, spiritual, mental, and cuddling kinds of fucking. Or in other words, your romantic, physical, emotional, and spiritual attraction to the person, not just wanting to smash your bits together. Which is why someone who has no sexual attraction whatsoever can still want to cuddle with and smooch and also marry someone of a particular gender. And look, as someone who's incredibly sexual, I know who could guess. That's a hard thing to imagine. I'm also not going to be a judgy asshole because I know people can be different from me. So, with that understood, let's talk about specific categories on this chart. So first, as you go up and down the y-axis, like you're practicing butt stuff, you have the differing levels of sexual attraction. On the bottom third is allosexual, which means to have sexual attraction. The next third is demisexual, meaning you have very little or a very slim band of attraction. And finally, the top third, fittingly completely off the chart dick, is asexual, someone who has absolutely zero sexual attraction. Now, across the x-axis are different levels of gender attraction. So if you're only attracted to another gender, in particular one other gender, you're heterosexual. And the middle third is both pansexual and bisexual, who while filling the same spot like a racist socialist and a woke capitalist on the political compass, end up here for different reasons. Bisexual people get here by being attracted to more than one gender, while the kitchen utensil fucking pansexuals get here by being attracted to people regardless of their gender. And on the far end is homosexual, being attracted to exclusively people of the same gender as them. Now, because of the spectrum, 
You can also probably put a name to just about every single point. Like, for example, something that is similar to pansexual, sapiosexual. Sapiosexuals don't give a shit about what gender you are. They make a mess in their underwear when someone is smart. Which explains why I've never encountered a sapiosexual, because they become so dry and soft they stop existing. On the other hand, one similar to bisexual would be polysexual, which is someone who is attracted to a wide range, but not all genders. You're asking why I brought that one up without explicitly making a joke, because I'm the joke. And because guess what? I'm not just a weirdo with a fetish for foodas, I'm queer. Specifically, I'm coming out on the podcast as polysexual. And don't get your parasocial panties pleated, I've already come out to my friends and family. People aren't the first to hear this. But for me specifically, what does this mean? I'm attracted to everything but genders with strong masculine presentation. Basically everything but men. Women, envy cuties, trans women with a girl cock, gender queer, and even people using he, him pronouns aren't masculine? You bet your ass. Or my ass. I'm, I'm not picky. Now with that autofellatio done, let's talk about fetishes and philias. First of all, what are they? A fetish is a sexual excitement caused by something that is not normally sexual in nature, isn't biologically designed to have a purpose for sex, or contradicts your sexuality without influencing it. This includes stuff like feet, cucking, furries, etc. Basically things that without, your genitals have a hard time spitting up the endorphin-flooding orgasms you're chasing after. Aphelia, however, is a sexual excitement over something that not only isn't usually sexual in nature, but is directly harmful to either the person with the philia or their desired sexual partners, or denotes something pathologically or legally wrong. Examples that aren't the super dark one you are thinking of would be like necrophilia, zoophilia, or flashing, which also says something about the one you're thinking of when necrophilia is less dark. So now we need to ask, how do these form? really easily, actually, because these form by having something during or before your sexual development that for some reason gets filed away as being somehow linked to sex. This can also happen as Pavlonian conditioning, like picking up a fetish for leather boots from participating in an experiment to find the origin of fetishes. Which is a real story, by the way. Like, imagine your boyfriend goes to participate in the study you know nothing about besides it being a sex study and come home with leather boots for you to stomp on his dick with. Now, philias, while they could develop like this, more often develop directly as a result of trauma, mental or emotional imbalances, or brain damage. Which is not me defending it, by the way. People are responsible for their actions. They want to do something that hurts others. It's on them to get help and stop that from happening before it becomes a problem. Now, as a side note, I do want to touch on kinks. Which is my kink. Just kidding, it's getting off. Anyways, a kink is basically a pattern of sexual behavior and turn-ons that don't necessarily follow the realm of normal sex and sexuality, and also doesn't necessarily cause harm or make it hard to come. And for more information on that, check out Wait Hat Nerd, where I talk about kink and fiction for a whole episode. But look, I'm sure you're wondering why I'm bringing all this up. Well, yes, a lot of people will be coming out, and more and more, both science and the layperson are talking about what objects people want in them, and what they want to stick their object in. And there's quite a bit of misunderstanding out there about these things. Who is it affecting? I have your answers. Also, don't question my shit. The answer is a lot of people. We'll start with the demographics of sex first. Worldwide, 50.42% of the population is male, 
In the U.S., the number, and in the U.S., the number is 49.1%, which comes out to 4,033,600,000 males worldwide and 162,030,000 in the U.S. respectively. While for female, the percentages are 49.58 and 50.9 respectively, which comes out to 3,966,400,000 and 167,970,000 respectively. Besides demonstrating that you don't have a female person in your life, that my intrusive thoughts are right and they're your own fault, what does this show? That apparently there are 0% intersex people, which actually isn't true. Because what's happening is that in a lot of places worldwide, most doctors are required to write either male or female for sex and not intersex. However, there is a figure for how many intersex people exist in the U.S. Somewhere between 165,000 and 5.61 million. Which, if you know numbers higher than the number of fingies you have, not only is that a lot higher than 7.5, but also is a massive fucking difference. And why is that? Well, because it's hard to track if someone's intersex or not. Think about it. Very few of those biological traits are really apparent to a doctor trying to tell the parents the nature of their child's genitals about some intense genetic testing, abdominal scans, and really intrusive hormone checks. And a lot of the other traits don't really begin to show up until puberty, which can last anywhere between one year to a fucking decade. So how did this figure come about? The lower end estimates that about 1 in 2,000 births has ambiguous both or no genitalia. And the higher end uses a massive suite of physical traits. And the thing is, is that both are somewhat controversial. Because obviously there's more than having a jism spewing clit or your balls being an Indian 7 Audi to determine if you're intersex. So the figure is kind of reductionary. But the other figure, according to a lot of clinicians, is too inclusive because some of those traits are granular enough to be able to be chalked up to happenstance or environment or lifestyle. But regardless, in the U.S., somewhere in the ballpark of 0.05% and 1.7% of the population is intersex. Now for the gender comparisons. It's estimated that worldwide, fewer than 1% of people are trans. On average, by country, 2% of all people are non-binary and gender non-conforming. This comes out to 80 million trans people and 160 million gender non-conforming people, which also only really accounts for populations that A, census data is available for, B, who live somewhere that allows people to identify like that without being killed or re-educated, or C, call it that and don't already have other genders. In the U.S., the number of trans people is 1.65 million and 3.3 million non-conforming people. And now for sexualities. Worldwide, 80% of people are hetero, 3% are homosexual, 4% are bisexual, and 1% of people are other sexualities. In the U.S., however, 96.6% of people identify as hetero, 1.6% identify as homosexual, 0.7% are bi, and 1.1% are other sexualities which means that I am like a collector's edition white person. Anyways, why do these numbers matter? Because if for no other reason, it's to remind you that these are people we're talking about. This isn't some cool and funky way the human brain works. These are actual people facing actual problems with other actual people hating them for fake reasons. 
And here's another reason to bring up these numbers. To remind you how much of minority queer people are. Not once did any of these population percentages break 10%. As a matter of fact, none of them even broke 5%. While yes, it may seem to you like every other person you meet is something other than cis and hetero, that's not the case. The gays aren't winning and don't have half the power that crazy people think they do. The world isn't turning gay, and whatever government you hate the most isn't poisoning the drinking water to make more of us. Anyways, let's talk about the history. And we're starting with the first moment an ape shaped almost enough like a human to not make a weirder jerk off to fuck another one. And no. Instead, we're starting with the question of where being anything but a cis breeder comes from. Unsurprisingly, this question for the origin of homo bi and a-heterosexuality has very, very old roots. Rather than talking about that, we're going to talk about another spectrum. A theory spectrum. Now, unlike the other spectrums we've talked about today, this one is a gradient thing most people assume is a spectrum. Now, on one end of the gradient is the theories that basically come down to human sexuality being some profound creation of evolution that is created with purpose beyond our wildest imagining. On the other end of the spectrum is the really mundane, shit's weird up there, bro. Sometimes the brain's just a little fucky. But before I get into it, remember, we don't fucking know where this comes from. As a matter of fact, we probably know less about the origins of human sexuality than we do about sex genes. Okay, so what's the argument on the profound end? Basically, that every sexuality, gender nonconformist, and intersex person serves a purpose because if they didn't, we would have evolved out of it. So, for example, having a certain population of gay and asexual people reduces the number of breeders in the tribe while keeping the number of adults high enough to do shit. Also, they can care for orphans, because remember, early humanity was a fucking shit show. And having trans, gender-fluid, NB, and intersex people allows for that human tribe to gain the benefits of both sexes or all genders without assigning someone to only one of them. And also, queer people means that the community is more harmonious, because like other social animals with gay members, they reduce sexual competition. Now, this theory has a lot of detractors, as you can imagine. First of all, this implies that everything humans have ever developed has a purpose. Which, look, if you believe that, look around you. No, literally, I mean, look at society and the human body. How much of that shit is actively defying being purposeful or reasonable? But another issue is that, hey, queer people can still have kids. Be it in the 1950s way where you just pretend to not be gay and imagine you're fucking a dude while getting your wife pregnant for the fourth time, or that you didn't realize you were queer until you had kids. Or alternatively, your flavor of gay doesn't take you out of the mating pool, which is also the name of the swimming pool I totally have. And there's another problem with this. The assumption that in prehistory, before writing or metal or walls, the people had hard and fast gender roles. In fact, there's evidence that the origins of gender roles were actually just looser than your hallway butthole. Meaning that a tribe wasn't just absolutely fucked if a man died and created the pressure to have trans people instead. And also, how do you explain literally half of all sexualities if they're meant to reduce sexual competition? Assuming polysexual is a thing back then, and my particular flavor of it, that lucky caveman is fucking and getting fucked by almost everyone. But on the far end of the gradient is that, hey, the brain is complex. Weird shit happens sometimes. I mean, think about it. Your brain is a lump of fat that looks like a chewed up piece of gum that's conducting enough electricity to light up a light bulb. 
you live inside that fucking thing and pile your body and live in a complex society. You are listening to a human you have never seen read a script that was written by a past version of that human a full fucking month before you're hearing this tell you that life is fucking wild. None of this makes any fucking sense, and so yeah, sometimes the light bulb pudding wants to feel another peen wielder's balls deep in your holes. But regardless of these explanations, there's one thing that stays true for the origins of human sexuality. It's much, much older than humans, and creatures were fucking since that became evolutionarily viable. Jumping way forward from the literal dawn of humanity, we jump into the ancient world. From the earliest times in ancient civilization, a myriad of cultures have both recognized and portrayed both gender and sexuality as a spectrum or with more than two options, even if they wouldn't necessarily use those words. In fact, there were usually mythologies or specialized roles and words for things like being intersex, non-binary, trans, and the wide variety of sexualities. For example, in ancient Sumeria and Akkadian cultures, there were gala priests that served as priests for the goddess Inanna. Now, the reason they're brought up is because there are multiple archaeological references to either the entire order or large segments of the order being gay. Based on their role in dress, it's assumed that they could have been trans or otherwise not gender-conforming. In the nearby region of Egypt, there's an entire third gender, usually translated as eunuch, or someone whose weaned went missing, but could more broadly be translated to mean anything without functioning or visible genitalia. And jumping all the way to ancient China, there are writings and evidence that queer people were not only recognized as existing, but acknowledged as people that exist, which, if you know the modern world, is unfortunately considered progress. Although in this case, not much surviving philosophy involves or focuses on queer people. And of course, everyone's favorites, the Greeks and Romans were also busting it down sexual style, with even many of their gods being either outwardly bisexual or homosexual, but in some interpretations of Athena and Artemis, are completely asexual. Now, this is not to say that the Greeks and Romans are good representations. Quite the opposite, in fact, because they believe that the only okay kind of gay is the kind where older men fuck younger and oftentimes lower social class boys. Well, back then, it was called pediestry. We would correctly call it now pedophilia. Meanwhile, they talked down on or outright banned loving homosexual relationships that replaced marriage to a woman, gay relationships between equals, lesbianism, and older men getting things in their ass. And while sure, besides ancient Greeks and Romans, everything seems all fine and dandy, they actually weren't. Because at the same time, often the same places, both transphobia and homophobia were exceptionally common. And why was that? Well, it's believed that sexism, homophobia, and transphobia all have a shared origin. That being that some people believe that masculine and feminine brains act differently, and that gender is a rigid set of rules and mutually exclusive traits. Which means in cultures with especially rigid beliefs around gender, it increases the likelihood of them also being homophobic and transphobic, because that culture believes they're breaking the gender rules and are part of whatever problem that is attributed to from moral weakness and degradation to sex crimes and social collapse. And why ancient cultures just so happen to be notably sexist? All of them? So, essentially, even while these beliefs were constructed that today sound progressive, were all rooted in some form of phobia or ism. Like for the ancient Greeks, it was mainly to stick your dick in something, meaning that men stuck their dick in something, and the culture didn't particularly care who. 
Although the ancient Chinese, sure, they recognized other sexualities, but the lack of concrete philosophical and scholarly recognition speaks volumes to the fact that they were probably viewed as weird anomalies. But past the ancient history, we get into the medieval age. And while you'd assume that the early Middle Ages especially, people would be doing nothing but burning homosexuals for Sky Daddy, it didn't really work that way. Far to the north, for example, while the Norse viewed being male to female trans as unmanly, kind of the point, and denounced the practice, as well as the practices of homosexuality and being unmanly in general, much of their mythology includes gods and heroes with loose gender and sexuality or crossing gender binaries. Now, also surprisingly common for a culture with some strong, you're not a girl, comments on young trans girls' Facebook posts energy, a lot of feminine bones were buried in the same way the men were, with ceremonial objects attached to masculinity and things like war armor and used weapons being buried with them, which hints to one of two things. Being female to male trans is totally cool to this otherwise manly man-focused society, or alternatively, my daydreams of a buff Norse warrior woman busting down my door and forcing me to be her husband could be a reality if I was born almost a thousand years ago. Almost makes it sound worth it. But further south, seeing as Christendom was just started to take off and in need of both followers and generally being more about love and community than control and opulence, Christians in the early days actually followed the rules of their turn the other cheek and love the sinner. Because while yes, homosexuality and other non-hetero relationships were frowned upon by the early church, they had the same policy as the U.S. military. Don't ask, don't tell but they actually had zero problem with non-binary gender identity or trans people. Why? Because of them, it was just something they didn't understand, so they just went, eh, guess it's God's plan then. Which, as a side note, if you're a Christian and still listening, why is that not how you take everything you don't understand? Like, you don't have to label everything you refuse to so much as browse Wikipedia about as a sin. You can just say God's plan and move on. Anyways, you know who did have a problem with envy people in medieval Europe? Secular lawmakers. But not for why you think. See, for secular lawmakers, they refuse to change the gender on ye old birth certificate or even bother to make laws that aren't gendered. So they didn't like people not being either a man or a woman, not because of outright hatred, but because the legal system is man and woman, meaning you had to pick one. Which is so fucking fine to me, because it is the most lawful, neutral, gender issues opinion. Like, look, I wouldn't have an issue, but subsection C says you have to pick a gender, and if you don't, I'm going to have to write you a ticket. But there's actually an example of this in the case of sex worker Eleanor Reichner, who is a person that moved between genders, but seemed to largely identify as a woman. They were male-bodied as well, and worked as a sex worker most of their lives. And why were secular authorities pissed? Because Eleanor didn't pick a single gender. Not the sex work, not being trans, and not being male-bodied, and servicing male-bodied clients. The fact that they wore women's clothing for a significant amount of their life, while also dressing as a man for a significant amount of their life. However, as all not horrifically awful things tend to do in this dumpster fire of a timeline, this ended. In the 13th century, as the Christian church became much, much more powerful, they began to become a lot more strict about their beliefs and who were allowed in. This included kicking the European Jewish out as much as possible and strictly disallowing any kind of sex that wasn't hetero, and if you weren't fucking, you better have sworn to Christ that it was a vow of celibacy and not this asexual shit. 
they also in this time banned non-binary presentation, apparently the sign that God's plan had changed. This only got worse through medieval European history and into the Renaissance, where the church grew powerful enough to even say that some people weren't even allowed to exist anymore. Important for this episode, this meant that people who weren't strictly masculine or feminine and stayed that way were considered sinful. And in the East, around the same time, the Qing Dynasty takes power in China. And while they did great things for the poor, check out the poverty episode, they did terrible things for anyone not straight. They made massive moves to make homosexuality not only censored, but suppressed, as well as immoral and illegal. Into the 1790s, the focus and concern of the discipline of psychology became to find criminals and punish them, as opposed to, you know, understanding the human mind and making people more satisfied with their lives. Not that we're doing that today. And today we do have some of that, but most psychology is practically applied to make you buy things rather than help you. Anyways, this made homosexuality even more disdained in the West as it became a medical condition to be cured rather than just a thing that people are. Now, surprisingly, while most Western nations were banning homosexuality and treating it as a criminal offense, France was doing the opposite. They were actually working to decriminalize being gay in 1791 and, surprisingly, didn't collapse as a nation into a thousand queerocracies enslaving straight people and fighting for supremacy over the once proud nation of France. Then in 1883, largely influenced by the West, Japan enters into the Meiji period. During this time, Japan was attempting to modernize, which by 1883 standards included passing sodomy laws, which are targeted towards male homosexuality, and making other queer identities completely illegal. And in 1886, Western medicine once again enters the game with the worst takes on gay people of all time, asking a simple and terrifying question. Is homosexuality a congenital illness or some kind of psychopathy? Now what this is asking is, is homosexuality and not being straight a birth defect that we can't fix or some kind of mental illness we can't fix? Which, if you know about the heroic age of medicine or just people in general in the 1880s, you understand that this doesn't mean, well, let's just leave them alone then. This means that to their I-can-fix-him eugenics asses, that gayness should be cured by any means necessary. And speaking of eugenics, as that started getting more and more popular in the early 1900s, anti-gay sentiments rose up alongside it, built on that earlier debate. That is until one group of eugenics-loving, racist, sexist, and homophobic fascists that love the color red and domestic terrorism took it too far. And no, not the modern Republican Party. I mean the Nazis. Kind of the same thing. And as fascists do, the Nazis hated anyone not cis and hetero, meaning that in addition to millions of Jews, Romani, disabled people, and people of color, millions of queer people were also slaughtered. And after the Second World War ended, a lot of places, in Europe especially, seemed to snap out of it and realize that these beliefs weren't harmless and as a matter of fact could cause death and destruction on a level no one was prepared for. So after the war, many places in the world began to roll back a wide variety of anti-living human being with thoughts and feelings beliefs. Which brings us to America. Starting out in the early 1600s, because the colonies were usually highly religious Christian groups influenced by the church at the time, homosexuality was criminalized and these places went fucking hard on that hatred, even executing quite a few people charged with homosexuality. However, oddly enough, things like intersex and gender fluidity 
didn't seem to be nearly as much of a concern as being gay. And in 1629, we have a record of Thomas slash Thomasine Hill, an indentured servant in the colonies, doing the work of both men and women, but also wearing clothes of both genders throughout their lives. And then in 1714, sodomy laws are commonly introduced across the colonies and in the colonial militia. But similarly to the source of Thomasine Hall, or Thomas Hall, someone oddly not persecuted at this time was the Public Universal Friend in 1776. This preacher in Rhode Island came to prominence when they survived a terrible illness and were reborn as a genderless evangel. And they gained quite the following. In addition to being recorded as a generally all-around nice person, the Public Universal Friend opposed slavery and stressed the importance of free will and the power of choice. And abstinence. And look, they're cool and all, but you have to remember that they are Christian. So uh, above and beyond everything else, they're going to advise you to never put your genitals in or on someone else. Unless it's to make a baby. But something that both that both Thomas slash Thomasine Hall and the Public Universal Friend demonstrate is that during the early days of America, many people were living as other genders or even as non-binary or even as non-binary or agender. And didn't seem to be bothered about it, which is interesting, especially with how much so many people today say that the Founding Fathers be horrified by trans people when they very well might have heard about it in their day and be more curious than furious. However, because again, we can never let anyone have a good time in this fucking hellhole, in the 1800s, laws around non-hetero people and gay people became tighter and tighter. Despite this, during the Civil War, at least 200 people who were assigned female at birth dressed as men and joined the Civil War on both sides. And while after some returned to their previous gender identity, many didn't and either lived out the rest of their lives as men or came out as non-binary. In addition, in 1896, we're introduced to another queer character of history in the form of Wewa, a Zuni person whose gender is the Zuni Lahmana gender. This gender role performs both feminine and masculine cultural activities, including performing both roles in ceremonies. Also, I apologize for the pronunciation. I'm bad at words. All words. And Wewa is extremely important, not only in LGBTQ history, being an openly third gender person during the time that shit like that would get you locked up by the white people, they were also incredibly important to the recording and preservation of Zuni culture. In addition, Wewa became a cultural ambassador on one trip to the U.S. Capitol and the White House and met Grover Cleveland in the process. Which, I can't really tell who had the weirder story of that interaction. But anyways, despite the amount of discrimination, even the early disjointed LGBTQ community was intensely active. In the early 1900s, tons of groups were founded to fight for their rights, including Herbie Gerber's Society for Human Rights in 1924. They're notable because the organization had developed and published several papers and publications before the U.S. government did the funny frog scream as they realized the gays were doing an agenda and shut them down a few months later. And this was kind of how a lot of these early groups went. A group of dudes that liked men, or women that liked women, or people that weren't cis, would meet up and name their group, and by the end of the month, Daddy Sam was calling them naughty. Wait. Okay. Daddy Sam would just tell them to shut the fuck up. He's kinky, but also more phobic than a 17-year-old boy at a country high school. Oh, remember the sodomy laws from 1714? Yeah, those were abolished in 1925. Meaning, there were laws against getting fucked in the ass for 211 years of American history, 
but the sale of full-ass people were only banned for 60. And I think everyone that fact pisses off is 100% correct. As another good note, while Big Daddy government was cracking down on gay people like they do on anyone who isn't old, rich, white, and straight these days, American culture was actually becoming a lot more accepting. Granted, in the he-means-well sort of way that we see with old people, but hey, it's progress. Like, the era of pre-code Hollywood from 1927 to 1934 was really open to having queer and queer-coded characters in their films, and was a surprisingly high number of movies either about LGBTQ people or featured them heavily. In addition, a good chunk of pre-code actors were open about their sexuality. And unrelated, but also related, 1929 was the release of the first gay porn called The Surprise of a Night, which, reading the plot synopsis, was uh, weird. It's porn in the sense that two men fuck each other on screen, but the end has a dance number with both their dicks out. I don't know what to tell you, man. But also in 1930 to 1933, there was something called Pansy Craze. This is mostly what I was referring to when I said they mean well. Because in this era, female impersonators, drag queens, and male-to-female trans people started to become a massive underground craze as performers. And this isn't like a point-and-laugh thing. I mean, like, in dramatic, erotic, comedic, and all the other entertainment icks that exist. Then we reach the 1940s, when a bunch of TV shows, radio shows, and the news begins to become really interesting gay people. Surprisingly, not always in the condescending way. In fact, there was a lot of interest to maybe sort of kind of understand perhaps the first thing about gay people. Granted, given that it was the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the focus was a lot on men. But still, this lasted up until the 1960s, which was in the midst of the 1950s and 1960s homophile movement. Which, unlike what it sounds, is not gay peopleophilia, it was an obsession with gay people. Also in 1948, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male was published by Alfred Kenzie, which was the first actual look into the scientific study of sex and sexuality in America. And in this document, it claims that about 10% of men at the time have been mostly or entirely gay for about three years, which I interpret to be in reference to gay experiences and not necessarily people identifying as gay. Also, keep in mind that this was after World War II and the ramp-up to the Korean War, that number might be skewed because the military didn't want gay people. Speaking of which, in 1950, 438 military members were discharged for being gay, as were 500 gay and or, quote, perverts working in the federal government. You know, right when the Korean War was starting? Man, it's almost like being homophobic is really bad when you're trying to fight a war. Anyways, this was followed up in 1952 with the APA, the American Psychology Association, declaring homosexuality as a personality disorder, and the following year, Eisenhower bans gay people from working in the military or government. But don't despair yet, there's still some hope. The Supreme Court. Fuck, we're desperate, aren't we? Regardless of how they've been acting lately, or up to a decade, uh, at this time, the Supreme Court actually kind of cared about you know, the spirit of the law and using it to protect people's rights and all that. So in 1958, the Supreme Court ruled that the gay publication One Inc. isn't obscenity and is protected under the First Amendment. So good on you, 1958 Supreme Court. I'm sure you didn't have your hands in anything immoral or otherwise problematic. 
much less sarcastically, Illinois also does something good and completely decriminalizes homosexuality, which means that you can't be brought to trial for lovingly fucking another man's butt. And then in the mid-1960s, due to the sexual revolution, everything gets all fucked out. With the movement to be more free in your expression and have sex when and with whoever you want, with or without a condom because birth control was being rolled out, and the blurring of lines between genders, a massive culture shift takes place where suddenly all these gender and sex rules are called into question. And more than that, LGBTQ people start realizing that others like them exist and are also politically active. Now, a lot of them were also artists, spawning pulp gay fiction that begins to be distributed and ushers even more people into their own realizations and awakenings and discovering that they aren't alone. For those of you wondering, yes, this is the rumblings of the gay agenda you've heard so much about. Kind of kidding. This was the beginning of what we now call the LGBTQ plus community. And then, the NYPD, trying to remind these filthy fucking hippies what decade they're in, raid the Stonewall Inn in 1969. This would then lead to the local gays gathering like college kids when someone with a Jesus bumper sticker pulls up on campus. And unlike those college kids, the gays didn't immediately start eating them alive. Instead, as the patrons and employees were being manhandled by cops, rather than getting the message that this ever-growing crowd was getting increasingly pissed off by the rough treatment and toning it down a bit, the cops started getting rougher with everyone, which sparked six whole fucking days of rioting. And this was the fire under the ass of the queer community. Now they were organizing, which is the scariest thing for conservatives to hear about a minority. And in 1970, the first gay pride parade was held. Of course, not to be outshined, in 1973, Maryland then bans same-sex marriage because for some reason, Maryland doesn't already have that one on the books besides being the worst parts of the Northeast and the Deep South. In the same year, the APA removes homosexuality from the list of mental disorders. Mind you, a whole 21 years after adding it. Unfortunately, because again, this is the worst fucking timeline and minorities can't have one fucking thing, the newly elected Harvey Milk was fucking assassinated on November 27th of 1978. And while tragic, this served as yet another catalyst for the queer community to rally to and is the source of the original pride flag, being designed by Gilbert Baker, inspired by Harvey Milk. Notably also, Gilbert Baker didn't copyright the flag, and instead began to create and distribute these flags that are now the United Pride symbol. Additionally, in the 1970s and 80s, trans advocacy groups began to pop up a lot, most notably being Female to Male International. However, also during this time, seeing as second wave feminism was in full swing, there were also, of course, debates among feminists about the place of trans people in their ranks. Unfortunately, a lot of these women groups turned away from their male-to-female membership and focused down on the woman-born-woman policies meant to protect quote-unquote natural women. Luckily, Third Wave came along and ripped their asses a new one for that, but that isn't for a while. And in 1981 as well, the CDC finally published its first AIDS report and actually admits that this is happening. A disease that, mind you, had been ravishing communities for the better part of a decade, the LGBTQ community especially because of a lack of information on the disease. And surprisingly, Ronald goddamn motherfucking Reagan in 1987 does something unexpected, recognizes the AIDS crisis and its effect on the communities it's ravaging, which even just from the times Reagan has appeared on the show before, discounting anything else you know about him, it's kind of surprising, right? 
This was followed up in 1990 by President Bush signing the Ryan White Care Act, a federal program to help people with AIDS. And then Bill Clinton came to office. Besides admitting to having smoked weed, playing the saxophone on TV, and getting blows at work, this guy wasn't nearly the cool and hip new blood he's been made out to be since his presidency. In 93, he introduced Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which is a military doctrine saying that gay people can't find the military, but that Daddy Sam doesn't know explicitly that he's liking some same-sex suck-and-fuck action, then Daddy don't care. This is followed up by supporting the Defense of Marriage Act in 96, meaning the feds couldn't recognize the relationship of same-sex couples. And on November 28, 1998, the LGBTQ community would unfortunately have another reason to rally. Rita Hester, a trans woman, was murdered in her home. Not only was she misgendered, but also poorly described by and reported on by news outlets, but also the police. In response, the community once again rallied, and a mixture of rage and grief held a several-night vigil. Like Rita herself, the vigil was poorly reported by local news. In response to all this, the trans community around her launched her website, Remembering Our Dead, which is now at this URL. TDOR.TransLivesMatter.info. And beginning the Transgender Day of Remembrance on November 20th. And we're going to have a moment of silence now. Thank you for doing that with me. In 2000, Vermont legalized civil unions between same-sex couples, giving the Defense of Marriage Act the middle finger deserves, as is the right of all Americans. And again, being the surprise heroes, the Supreme Court strikes down Texas law that makes homosexuality illegal, saying this is unconstitutional. Somehow, in 2008, despite both this and the California Supreme Court calling it unconstitutional, Proposition 8 is passed and having same-sex marriage becomes illegal in California. As a bright note, through the 2000s, trans people began to become more and more visible to not just pop culture, but to America as a whole. This is both due to their own hard work, but also from allies within and without the LGBTQ community, including reporting crimes against them, reporting on them, and talking about them fairly and accurately, and treating them like fucking people, like that was somehow a new fucking concept. In the 2010s, the Girl Scouts and Episcopal Church both rescinded their ban of trans girls in their organization. As another victory, Don't Ask, Don't Tell is repealed in 2011, and 2013, the Supreme Court once again puts on the only adult britches in the entire fucking upper government and kills the Defense of Marriage Act, hopefully with a backbreaker into a pit of barbed wire. Two years later, they lay their cock on the table and tell the South to suck it as they slap down all same-sex marriage bans. This is followed by, in 2016, the Obama administration issuing protections to trans students to express their identity and allowing trans people to serve in the military. And of course, because this is the bad timeline, Trump Me Daddy immediately removes these protections in 2017 because why the fuck can anyone have a good thing even once? Luckily, in 2020, finally the Supreme Court does something that isn't fucking people over by ruling on Bostock v. Clayton County, confirming that your employer has no right to know if your gender presentation match your, matches your grundle, and they can't fire you for what you wear or who you fuck off the clock. Finally. And that catches us up to the modern day. 
let's go to the modern issues. And before we really get into it, I'm going to drop a little spoiler. So, because we're going to cover feminism in about a month or so, I'm not going to talk about the issues facing women and things like the gender pay gap. Because it would be kind of weird to cover an episode that is mostly looking at gender and sexualities when they're queer and not bringing it up in the episode about women. Fair? I'm going to assume you said fair back and keep going forward. So then, what are the primary problems facing the LGBTQ community? Well, the two biggest are discrimination and disbelief. And while to some of you this might seem like some pretty narrow problems in comparison to other groups, keep in mind that these are two umbrella terms. So let's start unpacking them with the disbelief category. And this one is going to be a little hard to get consistent numbers on, but basically this umbrella topic is all the different ways that people say, you want men inside you? In a flabbergasted amazement. This includes things like believing gay people just simply don't exist, to believing it to be pathology, to even just simply not understanding what any of this shit means. And why is this a problem? Well, because if this person is just genuinely dumb or ignorant of what's going on around them, they become very, very easy to influence. And who's going to sound more right to someone that doesn't understand what gay is? Someone like me saying it's real and complicated, or someone saying it's Satan's lies to make your son want devil dick up his ass so Satan can fish hook him into hell by his asshole. Which, unfortunately, is an actual argument that I've heard from someone who has clearly never had anything in their ass. And if someone doesn't want to believe gay people are real or take the very real figures of rampant mental health issues and use that to call being in the LGBTQ community a mental illness, then it starts to lean into our second category of discrimination, because these fucking assholes will assume that it's something to cure and not just a silly little goof the human brain does. Which is why gay conversion camps and parents screaming angrily at school boards that their kids won't learn any of this queer shit exists. Because they view being part of this community as something bad. Which leads directly into discrimination. Now, since this is a broad topic, we're going to break down the discrimination into categories, beginning first with the general skepticism and misgendering category. Only 44% of Americans believe it's important to use a trans person's new name, and 34% thinks it's important to use their pronouns. 22% and 21% respectively think that they are kind of important. 18 and 36% think they aren't important, and 12 and 18% intentionally don't try. And why am I using these stats? Because while trans people are a small slice of the LGBTQ community, and the rate of discrimination against them is actually substantially higher, it's rarely orders of magnitude higher, meaning that you can extrapolate at least a tiny, tiny amount of the active ignorance towards other community members. And the other reason I'm putting these stats here instead of grouping them with the general disbelief is because this is an after-school special. Listen, everyone listening at home, if someone tells you something like their gender identity or sexual orientation, you can take them at face value. Even if you don't believe it's real, which you're fucking dumb, the socially acceptable and polite responses say, okay, and move on. Why? Because every other time someone tells you a fact about themselves, or says something in public you could disagree with, is it your job to disagree? If you answered yes, the reason you're lonely is because you're an asshole. If someone tells you their pronouns and you decide, nah, that looks like someone who'd have a pecker, 
what are you gaining besides imposing your douchey will on someone and reaffirming the exact reason why your kids don't talk to you anymore? Like, when someone tells you something that you don't believe in social settings, just nod and move on like a person that lives in society for fuck's sake. Doing this is discriminatory because you're telling someone that a core part of their identity is wrong, and for no reason too. Alright, but with that said, let's just start off with how many people are discriminated against in the community. As of 2020, 36% of all people in the LGBTQ community report being discriminated against. Which not might sound like much to you, Mr. CisYE. I want you to keep in mind that about 13.25% of white people on average have reported being discriminated against, and you just start frothing in the mouth. So imagine almost three times that number. And for trans people, that jumps up to a fucking ridiculous 62% and 69% for non-binary Gender queer, agender, and nonconformist. And normally I'd say nice because it's a funny sex number, but it's very clearly not nice. But where does this discrimination occur? Well, across the board, the highest is in public, with 51% of the community reporting incidents happening in public. Which means that if you walk outside as a member of the community and just so happen to draw the short straw of three possible straws, good chance it's happening out in the street. The next highest is in the workplace, with 36% of the community overall and trans people seeing 46%. And this isn't just from shitty customers, it's getting passed up for promotion, being harassed, and not being hired in the first place. Next is in school, where 21% of people in the community report discrimination, and the overall total for trans people is fucking 59%. In housing, the average is around 20%, and with law enforcement at around 15% for most people, for trans people, it's 20%. Most disturbingly, on average in the community, about 15% have experienced medical discrimination, and trans people are closer to 30-40% to 40%, depending on the procedure. And while that might just seem like a block of numbers and the buzzword discrimination over and over again, remember what that actually means. Discrimination covers everything from being denied service and medical aid, being verbally abused and insulted all the way to being physically attacked or even sexually assaulted. And if you think that has a massive impact on mental health, you bet your fucking ass it does. The average rate of suicide for trans and non-binary people in the U.S. is still hovering close to 30% on average, between 31-35% to 35% of all the LGBTQ people have displayed key signs of depression, anxiety, and PTSD if they haven't already been diagnosed. And while about 72% of Americans believe that LGBTQ people exist and should be treated as, you know, fucking people, the same can't be said for trans people. Where 38% believe we've gone too far to help them, and 23% say that the 30% suicide rate and 35% average feelings of hopelessness and anxiety is about as far as we should go to help them. And keep in mind that that 72% figure from earlier means that 28% of Americans think they shouldn't be. The place that the LGBTQ community is right now is one where the vast majority of Americans think they should be at the very least, quote-unquote, allowed to exist, but where, assuming 62 to 72% of Americans are never hypocrites, 28 to 38% of the population is responsible for a third of all queer people feeling unsafe and discriminated against, which should be unacceptable. So now let's transition over and talk about how to fix this. 
the policies we're going to talk about are aimed either to help or at least address some of the issues occurring around the community. But these days are largely focused on trans people. So let's start with good old discrimination protection laws. These laws, as the name implies, would be put in place to make it illegal to do things to cause someone in a position of subservience under you to be discriminated against. You know, like firing them because they started wearing eyeshadow to work and you thought less of them for it, or suspending them from school because they wouldn't stop saying they in reference to themselves. And while obviously this is a good thing, there are some clear problems. Like for one, someone has to call Daddy Sam in the first place, which will likely fall entirely on the victim of the discrimination. Also, because of the general egotistical slipperiness of people in middle management and the middle school principals, respectively, they could easily be like, oh, well, we didn't fire them for eyeshadow. It's that black eyeshadow with the color code of 36454F is against company policy. Or, oh, it wasn't for saying they, it's for saying English no gooder than their classmates. However, it is helpful in the sense that if one of these douche shots slips up, Daddy Sam goes ham with the belt means they're less likely to try the same shit. And also, this one has the highest cross-aisle support. The 80% of liberals and 48% of conservatives thinking these policies are a good idea. Okay, so, so far, things are looking up. People at least seem to understand some part of the problem. So, let's look at a conservative policy that they should have been working on for homework last night. What the fuck is this? Alright, well, the first thing they've chosen to present is to enforce your sex matching the athletics you're involved in. So, besides ignoring the major, major, major thing to bring up, in that this is literally ignoring the extremely important issues of discrimination in public and work, mental illness, rates of poverty, and medical discrimination, this is really ridiculous to even care about. Because while sure, as we've discussed, there's some general phenotypical difference between sexes, there's no actual impact on athletics. And I can't fucking believe I'm engaging with this. I'm a pasty, unathletic dude arguing by four plus degrees of separation with other pasty, unathletic people about how sports and athletic events work. I dare you to find dumber shit on the face of the internet. Alright, well, unsurprisingly, 85% of conservatives are in favor of this, and 30% of the liberals are. Alright, so since I threw that one out pretty quickly, I, I guess I'll look at another. Make it illegal for people under 18 to transition. Well, okay. So I assume this means via surgeries and hormone therapy. And look, I understand that they're coming at this from the angle of people under 18 aren't adults and can't legally make important decisions. Unfortunately, I also know that a lot of conservative places really want the age of consent to be lowered by a solid five years. I don't know about you, but 13 is a pretty young age for a boy to make the decision to allow to stick his old man penis in you. And I'd even get it if it came from the place of like, hey, we should ensure they know for sure, and we're just ignorant to people understanding of their own gender. But I also know that isn't true given the sports one. So really what this is trying to do is discourage people from transitioning. I think it's darker than that because teenage suicide rates are up. But you know, not my business to put two and two together and get anything but three. 72% of conservatives are in favor of this, and 26% of liberals. So, clearly, they gotta have a good one, right? Well, I'm, I'm gonna drop the act. No, not really. So, we're only gonna look at the bathroom one, and I think you all know this one. The whole argument that your bathroom should match your sex, 
ostensibly because the people saying this are afraid that someone's going to get raped in the bathroom, and so they believe that the best way to prevent this is to gender the bathrooms. Which I think would make sense if two things were different about the world. If rapists and molesters cared about rules, and all rapists were straight. Because while it's also an incredibly harmful stereotype that queer people are sex monsters, despite the evidence that, to the contrary, they're usually the victims of sex crimes, we do also have to admit that the queer switch in your brain doesn't lock the sex monster switch in your brain into the off position. I bring this up because even if we lived in the dystopic future the world is headed toward, complete with genital checkers at the doors of public bathrooms, that isn't going to stop this nebulous fear of bathroom rapists. In comparison to being a fucking monster and a sex criminal, I don't think a bathroom sign saying no dick here is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back as much as we'd all prefer otherwise. But surprisingly, 20% of liberals are in favor of this, and unsurprisingly, 67% of conservatives are. And next on the docket is another rocketed from the hardest working and also least self-aware member of the conservative team, make it illegal to teach gender in grade school. Okay, I'll call your bluff on this one. We won't use the words man, woman, girl, boy, NP, or any other gender terms until someone turns 13. Okay, I know that this isn't what they mean, and the idea is that men and women aren't these fucking Gerbers and Proverbs or whatever the kids are complaining about these days, and they should just shut the fuck up and not confuse the children. But we all know what this is actually about, right? There's certain communities that want to erase the possibility of queer people from kids before they really hit those prime dropping out ages so they can yell at a professor of psychology on Twitter and cite the school of hard knocks as their education into everything they need to know about the world. And look, I can understand the idea of not wanting to confuse kids. Those little bastards are fucking dumb. But kids also have a lot of neuroplasticity, meaning they learn concepts and ideas really well and can accept them fairly easily compared to adults. I think of all the stories online of people explaining why Uncle Mike and Uncle Jay hold hands at Thanksgiving, but the dumb little bastards just go, okay, can I do something more interesting now? Like, shit, make you clean it up? I don't hate kids, it's just funny to pretend I do. This also assumes that you trust the school system in general. Just someone with gifted kid burnout and a string of grade school teachers that really felt like they didn't know what they were talking about in hindsight, I don't. Alright, so 69%, nice of conservatives like this one, and 18% of liberals. Alright, looks like they have just the right amount of scheme for one more. Investigate child abuse for parents aiding in transitions. You what? You want to do what? Okay, so if they are really going with this whole it's a mental illness thing, sure, but also the medical community is 100% against you on this, man. Like, all this does is really make it even harder to be trans or be a trans ally. And the other thing is, what's the line? Yeah, sure, this might be in reference to stuff like sex change operation or hormones, but it could also be in reference to stuff like, hey, Micah is genderqueer, has a dick, so I bought them this dress they wanted. Look cute, by the way. And what, you want Daddy Sam to huff and puff and blow your whole family down because of a fucking dress? It's one thing if you're forcing your child to conform to a certain gender, because that causes a ton of fucking problems, but something tells me that isn't the goal. This has 59% conservative support and 17% liberal support. Now, the last one's a liberal policy, which is requiring insurance companies to cover transitions. And is met all around by booze of disapproval, with a whopping 7% of conservatives into it and 44% of liberals. 
Now, besides the pharma industrial complex basically owning Congress, why is this? Well, because there's still, for some reason, a debate in politics that queer people exist, despite everything else saying that they do, so anything that uses the words non-binary or transgender has to be checked over the fine-tooth fucking comb like someone's vaguely Middle Eastern in an airport. Alternatively, it's really just because there's a lot of stigma against the very idea of socialized medicine. Alright, so after really dragging American politics through the mud, what are some actual, actionable solutions to the problems facing queer people in the modern day? First things first is education. I mean, put simply, the more people know about a topic, the less they react like those videos of zookeepers give their primates a panic attack, they stuff tiger plush, and the more they realize that queer people are literally just people until it's sexy time. And even then, like normal people, the only difference is what they want to look at while they orgasm. Now, how do you even go about educating people? Sound therapy, where they're in a pure white room and you just repeat over a speaker over and over again until they crack, gay people are real and they're coming for you? No. Jesus. Fucking freak. You show them that queer people are people by introducing them to queer people. This can either be in a setting like a school classroom where students can freely interact with queer peers, or it can be by showing fully grown adults examples of queer people being normal. This podcast doesn't count. My personality makes gay people homophobic. As part of this education, it's also important to teach people how to interact with and treat people different from them. Because the thing is, is as someone who snuck into a friend group of largely straight men, gay people make them uncomfortable in the same way that white people feel uncomfortable around people of color. It's not a consciously homophobic or racist thing. It's just that they see a difference and their brain doesn't know how to deal with that yet. It takes time for the brain to adapt to see someone that is different, and it's important to stop being ashamed of it and teach people how to work through that sensation. The next step in fighting the problems of the queer is to continue to fight things like sexism and racism in every way we can. Because like we touched on much earlier, the roots of transphobia and homophobia is the same as the root of sexism, that being a high cultural demand for specific gender roles. Besides racism being bad, and you should be fighting it anyways, homophobia and transphobia are also rooted in xenophobia, a mistrust in things and people that are unfamiliar. And culturally breaking down those barriers will also help people to have genders and partner preferences you're mad about. Alright, so let's say you have the groundwork for all of that and you're ready for the next step. Well, you then let Daddy Sam step in with his flogging paddle and tell everyone to chill the fuck out. By passing and drafting anti-discrimination laws against discriminating by gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation, you force companies, the government, and organizations like schools and nonprofits to follow the rules. And how is this? Because if you require anti-harassment and anti-discrimination policies, not only can the person being discriminated against blow the whistle on it, it also means that their peers and potential customers or other outsiders are more likely to step the fuck up. Now, given that these policies are only good if someone actually tries to enforce them, that's the other thing that needs to change. You'd have to improve how these things are enforced to make the response be harsh and immediate. And why is that? Because people are going to be assholes, and threats won't always work, especially against egoists, or if you haven't done it before. So if you pass a law that's like, hey, pay $2 million, motherfucker, when you expel a student for wearing a skirt instead of slacks, then that school board very well might think twice if Daddy Sam has already brained two other whole-ass school boards with that cricket bat of a fine. Now, obviously, that has its kinks and specifics to work out, and not in the fun way, in the bureaucratic way, but still. And now, you might just be sitting here realizing, wait, this all sounds like if people give a shit. What if they don't? 
well, I gotta give you the big old shrug on that one. If people don't care about helping the community, the community won't get helped at all. Which is why I say that's unfortunate that we have to organize in any meaningful way in the first place. Alright, let's go to the soapbox and end the episode. As a newcomer to the LGBTQ community, being someone that only recently came out of the closet and really realized I'm not straight, I gotta say that doing this episode has really made me feel like I'm actually part of the community. And it's also made me realize how lucky someone like me is. Because I'm straight passing and cisgendered. Being someone who knows queer people and some that are gender fluid and non-binary, that is incredibly rare. It's also rare to have such a supportive family and friend group that sticks with you through these realizations about yourself. It's also incredibly depressing and frustrating to see people respond to us how they do. Honestly, less for me and more for everyone that can't pass. I wish from the bottom of my heart that we as Americans are able to feed this wave of horseshit and become not only more accepting, but are actually understanding. Because so far, as we've seen over and over again from the government, Swarms of mouth-breathers, well-meaning dummies, and other organizations, there isn't much besides a begrudging idea that maybe, just maybe, we exist. That even if we do, it's not like we actually have it rough. Or, barring that, it's not like we're actually capable and sane people anyways. And unlike other weeks, I super-duper don't have a solution. Unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to be able to destroy the misunderstanding and violence against queer people until these people give a shit. Besides educating people we can, no one else is going to even try. But, on the good side, I can say that things are getting slowly better. Despite recent things that might have popped up for you, like Andrew Taint or Fox News being Fox News, and the insistence by tons of churches and conservative groups to have family festivals right next to Pride events for some fucking reason, public opinion is becoming more positive, likely because of these whack jobs. So, hey, keep your head up. By the time you're the age of the boomers yelling that the 70s have no gays or alpha males claiming femboys are ruining their nation, if you are a femboy, by the way, thank you and call me, being gay very well might be the most vanilla thing you can be next to drinking coffee with cream. Come on, let's go home, you beautiful queers. And there is episode 5 done. As mentioned somewhere in the episode, I'll be back in a few episodes to talk about women's issues and feminism, so don't email me saying I missed it in the meantime. As always, if you do have opinions, advice on how to make the show better, good femboy thirst traps to follow, how you came out of the closet, and really anything else you want to tell me, make sure to email me at waytatpods at gmail.com. That is W-A-Y-T-A-T-P-O-D-S at gmail.com. Remember to check out my other podcast, Waytat Nerd. I do basically the same thing, but with nerd topics like fantasy, sci-fi, role-playing games, etc., where I hope you'll like the topics just as much. And also, remember to follow me on my Twitter at waytat underscore pods for more episode announcements. Have a good night, don't murder, have fun, and fly your gay colors proud. This has been Why Aren't You Talking About This? I've been your host, William. Good night.